Hi, I'm Pastor Adam, and you're listening to the Orange United Methodist Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that wants to help you find your place in God's story. And we hope this sermon can guide you along that journey. Visit orangemethodist.org to find out more information about location, service times, upcoming events, and ways to give. We hope you enjoy. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to to the field to feed his pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his elder brother, son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And he replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command. You have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God indeed. Good morning, Orange. Uh, It's good to be with you. I am Pastor Greg Gallagher and is... uh, Corey has introduced me. Thank you so much for that. Um, I am new to the church, brand new members, Connie and I, and we're grateful for the welcome and hospitality that began with your pastors and has continued as we've gotten to know more and more of you. We feel at home here, and we look forward to uh, serving alongside you as well as worshiping with you. Uh, as often as we can. We do have a monthly obligation to care for my mother-in-law. I'm so appreciative that Josh put her on the 
prayer list this week. Martha Jared, uh, Connie's mom, turns 90 years old in just about a week, and she has uh, worsening dementia. So she has around-the-clock care now. We have to go and take care of her, but that's another blessing of retirement that's come for us because uh, we also care for our three grandchildren uh, full-time now. And it's been, uh, it's been a joyful and challenging opportunity <laughs> to take care of those three, those three boys. But they were here this morning, and they participated in, in the worship service, and uh, we were glad that uh, the two older ones actually helped break down all the chairs in the fellowship hall, which made me very, very happy to see them uh, at work uh, trying to serve this morning. Uh, if you would join me in this prayer of illumination as we prepare to hear God's word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Well, preachers cannot resist preaching on this text this morning. Uh, some say Luke 15 is the gospel within the gospel. And it is unquestionably the most powerful short story that has ever been told. As a child growing up in the Methodist church, I can remember, uh, I can't remember rather, a time when I did not know the parable of the prodigal son. However, I have to admit that uh, I didn't know what prodigal meant until I was much older. I was surprised to learn that prodigal isn't even found in the Bible. Did you know that? It's an editorial edition that probably was added to the sacred text of Scripture along about the 4th century to explain what the story was about, to describe the main character, if you will, who is this wayward prodigal son. But what exactly does prodigal mean? Do you know? Um, according to the dictionary, prodigal means spending money or resources freely, recklessly, wastefully. But it has another meaning as well. Wastefully extravagant, lavish, and extremely generous. And I believe that both definitions are important to understanding this parable. Now, first, this is, this is a story of a reckless son. Verses 13 and 14 of Luke 15 tell us that he traveled to a distant country and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. He spent everything. I don't think I have ever used the word dissolute in a sentence. In fact, that's another one of those words that's kind of confusing to us, isn't it? But it's a very graphic word. It, it means drunken, wild, promiscuous living. But this isn't just a story about uh, a wild and wasteful son. Is the son really the star of this parable? Or is it someone else? It, it seems to me that as important as his lostness is to the chapter, after all, the first two stories or parables deal with a lost, a lost lamb or sheep and a lost coin, there is something else going on here that to me is far more important. And that is the extravagant actions of the father. 
This has inspired uh, William Barclay, who was a prominent scholar and Bible commentator of the 20th century, to call this the parable of the loving father. Others have called it the parable of the waiting father or the seeking father. And I think Klein Snodgrass, who has written a book on the parables of Jesus, has really nailed it with his title. He says it's the parable of the compassionate father and his two lost sons. So why did Jesus tell this tale? According to verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15, which we didn't read this morning, but are necessary to understand uh, the context and all that's going on in this passage, it was to answer his critics. You know, Jesus had some opposition during his ministry. And his critics said, Now all the tax players, uh, collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Rather than engage his critics with debate, a common practice in our day, no matter what the topic that people disagree on, Jesus tells stories, parables, three of them, revealing God's attitude towards outsiders and sinners. A shepherd who leaves his flock in search of one lost lamb. A woman who turns her house upside down looking for a lost silver coin. And a son who turns his back on his dad and ends up lost and demoralized in a distant land. When it comes to the least, the lost, and the unlovely, Jesus says here in Luke 15 to his critics that God is always searching for them. He woos them, he waits for them, and he welcomes them home, no matter how long it may take. Which means for us that when we sin, we don't always get what we deserve, do we? No, we get what we don't deserve, and that's called grace. I have another story to tell you this morning about me and my two sons. My boys are grown men now. One of them just turned 40 in March. The other one will be 39 in just a couple of days. John, the younger, is a United Methodist pastor in an urban inner city area in Lexington, Kentucky. He has a thriving, wonderful ministry. And Jared is a surgeon and UNC assistant professor in the School of Public Health here in Chapel Hill. Well, 35 years ago, when they were four and five years old, early in my ministry, when I was getting started, I was inspired by a situation that I had with them, a disciplinary situation, to teach them about the grace of God. It was a Friday night, and the boys had one of their friends, another child from church, the church right across the street from the parsonage, that was invited over to spend the night, and his name was Jake. And Jake was, he was not a bad kid, but he was really rambunctious and not especially obedient. And Jake and Jared and John were all three sleeping in the boys' room in bunk beds. Let that sink in. It seems to me that bunk beds tend to bring out the worst in kids. Uh, my little brother used to annoy me repeatedly when we shared a bedroom and had bunk beds. I was on the top, 
he was on the bottom, and he frequently was kicking and poking me through the mattress from underneath. Anyway, it was getting late, and I wasn't having any success and getting the boys to quiet down, so I issued an ultimatum. Any of you dads good at issuing ultimatums? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I told the boys, either get quiet now or Jake goes home after breakfast tomorrow morning and there will be no trip to McDonald's for lunch. Well, for a moment, that seemed to work. But the temptation was too great. Within minutes, there was the sound of more horseplay and laughter in the bedroom. My frustration suddenly tipped over into anger. And I went back in the room for the fourth or fifth time, ready to administer some justice. When morning came, I kept my promise. After breakfast, Jake's parents came and took him home. And I made my boys clean their room, which was just a terrible punishment. <laughs> they were heartbroken. As lunchtime approached, I told them to put on their shoes. I said, we're going out, boys. Still pouting, they did as they were told. It was time to teach them a lesson. We made the trip across town and pulled into the McDonald's parking lot. The boys were very pleased, but they were also really confused. And I explained. I said, boys... Justice is getting what you deserve. And after last night, you guys deserve to be punished, don't you? They dutifully nodded their heads. I told you that Jake would go home and there would be no lunch at McDonald's, right? But I have brought you here anyway because I decided to give you some mercy. And mercy means not getting everything you deserve. Well, they didn't really understand what mercy was at that point, but they were thrilled at the idea that, that they were going to get to eat at McDonald's after all. And after lunch, we walked across the street for one more lesson these boys needed to learn. We went to Baskin-Robbins, and I bought them both a chocolate ice cream cone. And then I said, boys... Justice means getting what you deserve. Mercy means not getting everything you deserve. But this is grace. You're getting something good that is undeserved. And that's how God and I love you. You know, they never forgot that lesson for years to come. They... Whenever they got into trouble, they'd say, grace, daddy, grace. <laughs> what about the parable? Well, what did the prodigal deserve? He thought he deserved a share of his father's uh, wealth in his inheritance, as we would call it. And according to Jewish law, upon the death of his father, he would get one third of his father's land. His elder brother would, would receive twice as much, two-thirds of the land, but he would also have the responsibility to care for perhaps his surviving mother or other needs of the extended family. The father 
um, had to deal in this moment, though, with this, the impatience of his younger son, who wanted his share now. Now, that was an unusual request that, frankly, was an insult to his dad. One commentator observes, he may not have literally wished his father dead, but his actions show that he did not really care for his father or desire a relationship with him. He wanted his father's money, not the father. The father could have refused him, but he didn't. Graciously. He set his son free. However, it didn't take the son very long to hit rock bottom. The best he could do after he had spent all of his inheritance on booze and drugs and prostitutes was a job feeding pigs. A filthy, forbidden task in the Mishnah for Jews, which said, Cursed be the man who breed swine. This reckoning in the young man's heart and mind began a process of repentance when, when he realized he had sinned against God and his father, no longer worthy to call, be called his son. Twice, this is mentioned in the, past, in the passage, twice Jesus uses the exact sentence. The first time it was in the boy's head as he was... Uh, mustering the courage to go home. And the second time was in the midst of his father's embrace and his kisses. The son might have deserved a shame on you and a shunning, but instead he got what he didn't deserve. Unrestrained love and unconditional acceptance back into the family. And friends, that is what we Christians call grace. Grace. Now, some hearing this story probably argued that the son wasn't the only reckless one. Uh, like the elder brother, they may have complained that his dad was way too permissive to let his son go so that he could waste a small fortune. He should have never given his son so much and expect so little of him when he came crawling back home. I expect the Pharisees also thought that Jesus was wasting his efforts spending so much of his time with those that were living at the margins of society. As one person calls them, the waste people that are in every place at all times. What they fail to understand is that God seeks out the least deserving. Always. It shocks our sensibilities of, of justice, and it seems so unfair. So unfair. But that's who the God of the Bible is. Both then and now. And I call this the prodigal principle. The story reveals that our Heavenly Father is a prodigal God, excessively, extravagantly, lavishly generous. And the details of this parable intentionally emphasize this. There is no justice to be found here, is there? Think about it. You just heard Corey read the story, a long story, a powerful story. There's no justice there, it's all grace. 
The Father is waiting for the Son to come to His senses, just as God is waiting for some of us to get our act together in life. The the Father sees Him while the Son is far off, and He runs to Him, which, which was an inappropriate act for a man in the Middle East at that time. God is looking out for us, ready to run to us as well. And the father hugs him and he kisses him and he dresses him in the clothing of an heir just as God in Christ offers us a glorious inheritance as we read together in that opening call to worship. The robe indicates that he was restored to this former place in the family. The ring is a bestowal of the father's authority. And the sandals mean that this wayward son was no hired hand. The boy didn't get what he deserved. It was all grace. And honestly, that is a bitter pill to swallow. When you're the the older son who stayed home, behaved yourself, and fulfilled your duties to the family, right? I mean, it's been my experience that whenever Christians lose sight of grace, they become increasingly like the elder brother in this story. Judgmental, self-righteous, arrogant, proud, and exclusive. We lose our fullest capacity for love because we forget who we are and where we've been and all that God has given us. Not because we've earned it. No way. But because God has made us his own children without distinction or discrimination. That's grace. That's the heart of the Christian gospel. It's grace. In a cartoon depicting um, the prodigal's homecoming, that's up on the screen now, the father is saying to his son, who's, who's got a tear coming down his cheek, this my son was lost and now is found. And the older brother says, he probably gets the top bunk also. The message paraphrase puts it much more graphically. I'm going to read a few verses for you. Listen carefully. Look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with a feast. The father responds, Son, you don't understand. You were with me all the time, and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time, and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. Henry Nowen, one of my favorite writers who died in 1996, was profoundly impacted by this parable and the Great work of art by Rembrandt that inspired it. The the backdrop, this is just a a piece of that painting which hangs in a museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. But uh, Nowen was so inspired by this painting that he went to see it in person. 
and sat in front of it with an arrangement of the museum for many hours just contemplating its details and also the, the depth of this parable. Now one says this, Here is the God I want to believe in. A father who from the beginning of creation has stretched out his arms in merciful blessing, never forcing himself on anyone but always waiting, never letting his arms drop down in despair, but always hoping that his children will return so that he can speak words of love to them and let his tired arms rest on their shoulders. His only desire is to bless this was Paul's point, I believe, in Ephesians 1. He begins this, this amazing epistle to the church at Ephesus with this hymn of praise for the grace of God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says later to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. And then he says, as we recited together in the call to worship, I pray that your eyes would be opened, that you would see with the eyes of your heart the, the nature of our calling and the riches of his glorious inheritance. I'm going to be frank with you. I don't know how strongly we believe it. But there is a doctrine of Christian faith that we Methodists have always been known for. It's called grace. Corey beautifully talked about it in the membership workshop just a couple of weeks ago about the, the movements of grace, provenient grace, uh, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace, for by grace, he says, you've been saved. This is not your own doing. You didn't have a thing to do with it. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. Honestly, I... I believe United Methodists wouldn't still be fighting and dividing uh, after 50 years over this issue of human sexuality if we could just remember that our God is a prodigal God. And if as a church we could embrace our calling to be a prodigal people, extravagant, excessive, reckless, in our love for one another and for this world. I love it that our pastors in this church ask us to find our place in God's story. And I think about that a lot. It's been good for me in this season of, of big change and transition for me and for Connie as we left, you know, nearly 40 years of ministry in the local church and and now have a different role, a very different role. But I think about this. And I've thought about this parable now for two months. I got asked to preach two months ago. 
which was excruciatingly hard. <laughs> I mean, I usually had like five days to prepare a sermon when I was a pastor. You know, it's that week after week after week. And now I've got two months. What do I preach on? And the Holy Spirit led me to this passage. And I've dwelt in it and thought about it and prayed through it. And I've asked myself a question I'm asking you. Where do you see you, yourself, in this parable? Which character in the story of the prodigal do you most identify with? The wasteful son? The extravagant father? Or the self-righteous older brother? Who had a very hard time seeing that he too was the recipient of grace. When we consider all that we have in life, all that God has done for us in Jesus, who has earned what God has given? Anybody want to stand up and lay claim to that as a work of your own doing? Absolutely not. Which one of us deserves to be called a son or daughter of God? How easy it is for religious people to forget where we've come from. The Apostle Paul never forgot where he came from. When writing to the deeply divided church at Corinth, he confessed, For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me has not been in vain. This story is not about the human love of an earthly father for a rebellious son. Although there is much here for us dads to imitate. It is a story about how God loves sinners. Including you and me. A prayer that I often pray. That dates back to the 4th century. Um, 15, 1600 years ago. A prayer that I prayed this morning at 4.30 a.m. is this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Would you pray with me? Prodigal God, we pray that we will never, ever take our grace, your grace, so freely given to us for granted. We pray that we will have an overwhelming sense of gratitude in our hearts because all that we are and, and all that we have is because of you, our gracious Heavenly Father. We don't deserve any of it. God, it's all a gift of your grace. And, and Lord, we pray today for prodigals everywhere, just as Corey has done in her prayer this morning. We pray especially for wayward children and fathers who aren't living right with God and, and all those who are missing out on the abundant life that Jesus offers us. Help us persevere in our prayers as we wait and watch for their coming home. Make us at orange a prodigal people whose arms are open wide, not to keep people from, from coming in, but to welcome them and embrace them as they enter the kingdom of God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Please join us again next week. In the meantime, you can find us online at orangemethodist.org.